Welcome to the Art Life Faith Podcast. This is the show where we talk about art, what it has to do with your life, and what it has to do with the Christian faith. And I'm your host, Roger Lowther. In previous podcasts, we've talked about the challenges of working as a Western classical musician in a global and missional context. In my first month in Japan, I was helping to lead worship on a pipe organ, which I was asked to do when an older missionary came up and started to berate me. You can't play that kind of music here. It's completely against everything we're trying to do for the Japanese church. In other words, he was not very encouraging. I was a bit shocked, but I could see his point. As Christians, we want to see the nations of the world worship God in their heart languages their spoken language, but also their musical language and cultural language. The music of Messiaen, Vierne, Vidor, and all the other Western composers who've written for the organ are not part of their heart language. So doesn't that mean I shouldn't play that music while church planting in Japan? I mean, what role do I have as someone trained in distinctly Western styles of music and bringing the gospel to the people of Japan How can I justify playing the pipe organ for people in Japan? Well, okay, so this, of course, is one of the key issues we've been addressing in many podcasts. The fact that we've seen many Japanese become Christians, not by adopting Western cultural forms, but by embracing creative expressions of the gospel in their own culture, proves we need to rethink this dilemma. I mean, church playing around the world builds the kingdom of heaven where all the nations worship God, of course, through their heart languages, but also they're led in worship through the heart languages of all other people as well. Just as in Isaiah 6.3, where the angels call holy, holy, holy to one another, our worship is enhanced by calling out and sharing the praises of God through our own languages and cultures, our own perspectives and insights and experiences and God is most certainly glorified through it. When I play the pipe organ in Japan, I build relationships with people that lead to experiences of the gospel. I share myself, and they in turn share themselves with me. And through it, we see Japanese become Christians, not Western Christians, but Japanese Christians who praise God through their own perspectives and lead me in worship through them as well. So being an artist and a missionary is not only okay, but it's helpful, it's effective, it's strategic. And we're going to investigate this a little bit more fully in today's podcast. This week, I'll be talking with Samuel Metzger. Samuel and I have a lot of overlapping circles. He's currently the organist at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, which is a church that supported me and my family generously as missionaries for many years now. It's also where my latest organ album called Covenant was recorded. You can check out that album and its music in the show notes. Before that, Samuel was the music director and organist at Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee, another church that supports us very generously. I was also the organist there for a number of years before coming to Japan as a missionary. And before that, he was the organist at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Florida, a huge TV church with services broadcast around the world. I actually auditioned to be organist at that church, but didn't get the job. When Samuel auditioned, 
he did get the job. So obviously he's a phenomenal organist. He's active as a concert artist and was also a Fulbright scholar in Germany. Anyway, the list goes on and I feel privileged to know him and be able to call him a friend. The reason I'm bringing Samuel on the show today is because besides being a stellar musician, he also grew up as a missionary kid working with the Navajo. And so he really has something to offer as we seek to understand what does it mean to work as a Western classical musician in a missional context? Samuel, thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you are a musician yes. and you've been a musician your whole life and you are a missionary kid. Mm-hmm. And we've had a number of conversations in the past in this podcast about how the two connect, missions and arts. Mm. And so I'd like to talk with you a little bit about that and hear some of your history. So when we go back to the beginning, in a sense, you're growing up. Tell me about what it was like being the son of a missionary family. Well, I think it's probably the case for all missionary kids. It is it is a bit of a unique circumstance because you're in a foreign place. And even though I grew up in the United States, but being on the mission field, being truly a minority, and for a lot of the time being homeschooled, the family is very important. My love of music was really under, came uh, through my father. My father, who's a, a German immigrant, he's now a past, loved classical music, loved the music of Bach, uh, loved the organ in particular, had studied organ privately in his late 20s. Uh, so when we went to the mission field, he had this wonderful record collection and and conversations, and uh, he would reminisce about programs that he'd gone to at Eastman School of Music when he lived in Rochester, and I would hear about all of these famous organists, and of course we had the recordings. Mm. So was he a musician himself or just a music lover? Music lover, uh, he had played for a little bit, um, Mm -hmm. but when you start playing an instrument age 27, you're just not, regardless of how hard you work, you can't do it. And then he felt called into ministry. Right. so I grew up hearing music constantly in the home, even though we were in a place culturally that might have seemed a bit uh, removed from that. But when I was 11 is when I was able to start taking some private lessons at the uh, university in Flagstaff, which was an hour drive from where we were. They had a preparatory school for for young kids, so I studied with a student teacher there and actually began on the organ because we didn't have a piano. We were given a little electronic organ. Hmm. And uh, so that was at 11. That's the way I started as well, on the organ, not the piano. Yeah, I think it has definite benefits and definite disadvantages, Mm -hmm. technically, as as keyboard players will know. Give me counterpoint, I can play that all day. Arpeggios, that's always not quite as comfortable. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But um, So what was the ministry that your dad was involved in? So we were, um, my father was a missionary to the Navajo Indians, and the Navajo Indian Reservation is the largest, it's the largest uh, Native American nation in the country, and it's all around what's called the four corners there of Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, and Utah. And we were in the portion of the mission field, which is near the Grand Canyon. We were about a 40-minute drive from the Grand Canyon where we lived. So we had a mission church, actually was in a mobile home, which was right next to the mission field, right next to the reservation. You could not be on it uh, as a non-Native American. Mm-hmm. So we we lived right next to the reservation. We would go out in my dad's old World War II Jeep out into the sheep camps and 
would visit people. Some of the ministry was people coming to the mission church. Others were just people that my dad would visit. The the Navajos did not did, did not speak English. He had a, a an old fashioned wind up record player with sermons on it uh, spoken in in their native language. Wow. Um, as it was kind of funny after listening to them over and over again, you could predict where the pops and the clicks were mm-hmm. in the LV. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we'd be out there in the in the sheep camps, and you know, would have fry bread cooked there and lard on an open fire and uh, mutton stew and all those those things. And then we'd go back to my to to my home, and we'd be hearing a Bach cantata <laughs> at night. Well, so that, yeah, that makes me wonder if he's carrying this record player to the reservation. Yeah. Was music a part of this ministry? Was he playing music as well? No, it, no, it, it was not. It, it, it was a very, it was not the kind of record player. I can't, I don't remember why, but it was not the kind that would use the normal magnetic electrical pickup. It was totally acoustical. Um, it, it was, it was a non-electric system. I, I don't know what that particular technology was but no it did not play lp regular lps hmm. did he then do music as a ministry at his house or off yes. the reservation yes there was when we were first on the mission field we actually did meet in our living room then we had the regular mission church he would refer to classical music and later on as i was able to play more for example i played once i had learned all of the bach schubler chorales I was able to play them, and he would, you know, use scripture to talk about the text, and he would give a translation. Sometimes my dad would do his own translation that would be more literal rather than the, what's it called, versify, or has to be rhyming. Right. You know, like the Catherine Winkworth translations are beautiful, but they're not always literal. Mm. And Um, so how did that go? What was the reception? Were there a lot of people there? Yeah, I think it was, it was, it was well received. It was just sort of part of my dad's ministry you know he loved music and would refer to it Mm. Uh, and then we would often at christmas time we would have we would have a listening time to listen to the messiah the christmas section and we would print out the lyrics and so the congregation would hear this wonderful music but then also also the gospel story and we did it with that and then he would on occasion this would be for the more adventuresome listeners would maybe do a Bach cantata and then give a translation in English or something like that. But that was probably becoming more of a reach. Handel's Messiah is, a, is an easier lift. Mm-hmm. Well, I would have enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting, though. Do you, I mean, one of the things that we struggle with in Japan is that whole thing about trying to make sure that Christianity doesn't look like a Western religion. Yeah. And so bringing in Bach cantatas or Handel's Messiah, things like that, do you think there was any of that conflict there or how do people i hmm, i'm not sure that the navajo people at least certainly 30 years ago would have thought of it that way i think in our more modern times people are more and more sensitive to to those thoughts i wouldn't Hmm. now maybe we were just oblivious to it uh but i guess in a way even for the few white people who came to my dad's church that was practically just as foreign to them as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, so right. That's the true. whole thing was a novelty. <laughs> it was a novelty that people thought was kind of interesting. And, you know, you, you present it without, without trying to um, make excuses for it. You just present, oh, this is wonderful, you know, and right. you present it, and then with the assumption people are going to like it. My dad always would say, 
you have to get the hay out of the hayloft down on the floor where the cows can eat it. I don't know if that's an old German saying or what, <laughs> but his attitude was, I like and I take that even when I do concerts in church settings, if you tell somebody about a piece of music, you give them a hook, and you present it in such a way that you, that assumes they're going to like it, they will, of course, like it. And right. so I think being not so self-conscious about that, but choosing carefully, you know. Yeah, and I mean, kind of, I asked as a devil's advocate, because obviously I'm an organist as well, and I'm playing Bach all the time in Japan, which you know, seems like this Western thing, but... It seems to, it's a chance to say, this is what I have to offer. This is who I am. It's a way to for relationship building rather than some kind of Western domination of culture thing. It's just like a sharing time. Yeah. And yeah, I think that it's, it's being less self-conscious about it. But whatever we present and what it, particularly those of us as performers, if we do it with passion and excitement, uh, I think that ultimately music is just music and you have to know your your congregation i do remember you know i come back from germany having studied all of this high art and then i end up in a church in south florida which was a tv church and really appreciated just the old hymns so i kind of got a little bit off of my pedestal and realized you know playing i could play my bach and my vieren and all that but then if i worked in a nice arrangement of a hymn setting or something that people related to that bought a lot mm -hmm. of buy-in. And in the end, uh, after being there for several years, my solo concerts would get a huge audience. And it wasn't because they were organ lovers. It's just they kind of knew that whatever I presented would be they would like. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so I, I think it's presenting things with passion. And I think that's, that's the key. That's cool. So what about in case of... Navajo music. I know they do have a, a rich heritage of, which has really been commercialized. When I've yeah. been out in West and seen the dances and various things going on, were you ever able to sing together in Navajo various songs or hymns that were Christian? Yeah, there were some songs when, we, particularly with the with, you know, well, first of all, most of the Navajos by the time that were young, like young parents and children, a lot of them were already starting to lose their native language. Um, mm -hmm. They had become very westernized, as in language-wise. But there were some some songs that we would sing in our uh, Good News Club with the kids that there were some verses in Navajo that we kind of, my dad and us as, as family learned kind of by rote. So we did have a little bit of that, but they would tend they would be Christian songs, but Christian songs that had originally been in English and then had been translated. Mm -hmm. So there was a little bit of a tradition of that in the actual the actual Navajo music itself. It's it's not completely tonal in the sense of what we would think. It was more some chanting and more just um, and a lot of that had to do with the Navajo religion and so some of the so some of that didn't naturally translate over into into the mission, but doing a verse or two of a song in Navajo, that did happen, yeah. And how did people, how did Navajo react to that? Did they respond well to it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and we did a lot of things, like, for example, instead of just putting a cross on the wall, we had a Navajo rug made that had a cross, and the offering plate was a Navajo basket. Um, and so we did things to try to incorporate the culture into the the services i think because my father being an immigrant 
understood what it was like to not be a part of the majority culture, he was sensitive to that. And, and in a sense, because he came to this country when he was 16 after World War II, and, and throughout his whole life never felt truly American. So he was sensitive to other cultures not feeling that way. So I think he, he related mm. well to that. So he did what he could, I think, to create those bridges. So let me jump ahead to modern time and this spread of COVID, and this has been hard for a lot of people. I'd love to hear your thoughts about how music had a role to play in healing during this time. Absolutely. Well, for all of us, uh, people in general, but certainly those of us in the arts and those of us who serve in church, it's been, uh, even for us creative people, has has taxed us, you know, coming up with Mm. different ways we unfortunately at the very beginning of the covid we session we season we had a pastor catch covid and die and so that kind of probably launched us a little bit more quickly into you know the various measures and we actually Mm -hmm. went into having to do everything virtual at for a couple of weeks while we're waiting to see if any of us had covid because we'd been in the same room with this pastor uh we even recorded things separately in our homes so i would say it took a lot of flexibility, but the congregation was so appreciative to have some normalcy. And, and we're blessed, of course, to have had an AV team that could help us make the, the, the quality of the audio as good as possible and cameras and all of those things. Uh, so we, we were blessed to have that. But uh, the congregation has really appreciated all that we've done, have been so uh, appreciative and really have reached out. For me as an organist, where I sit normally on Sunday morning, I'm kind of up there doing my thing up there very privately with my back to everybody. But it was interesting that during COVID, because of them needing to put something on the screen, they had a camera pointed kind of down at the organ. And so for the first time, a lot of people saw what an organist does, and that Mm -hmm. was interesting. So in a kind of a curious way, it raised the people's appreciation of the organ, which I thought was was curious and interesting yeah you know i remember during covid i was watching i sometimes watch nbc news from japan because it's one of the few that i'm able to kind of watch what's happening with american um, news and uh second prayers your choir was on the news Um, yes yes that was uh really a wonderful thing that came out of a tragic situation this this pastor who died really loved music was so supportive of the music of the loved handle so he passed away of covid and the choir uh, led by our choir director calvin ellis uh, decided to go to his widow's house and sing a hymn a cappella and it was a moment when you know this group of choir members many who've sung some have sung in the choir for 30 years or longer their group of music lovers lay musicians uh some are have even have music degrees but maybe didn't end up going into music as a full-time career uh, they took their love of music and then used it to serve the higher purpose of ministering to this widow and uh it was it was posted i believe on instagram or twitter and then somehow picked up uh, by nbc news so that was a really sweet thing that came out of a very sad situation yeah i'm sure it's healing for the choir too to just have a way to to do something that brought light in a dark situation. Yeah, absolutely. As we know, arts and music and and all of these things that we have 
are what sustain people through difficult times. Uh, you can look throughout history. I think of my, my dad's home country, Germany, how quickly after the war they rebuilt the concert halls or would put on, you know, the radio broadcasts of, you know, orchestras performing even in rubble, the importance of the arts and what that means for a culture. And for those of us who serve and use our music in the church setting, it relates on in some ways not only musically, but then the the whole fellowship, the the the, the church family, and the spiritual higher purpose of that. So that comes together. That came together in a wonderful way. That's a great story to end with. Thank you so much for your time, and God bless your ministry and everything you're doing here. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. This is Roger Lowther, and you've been listening to the Art Life Faith podcast. Check out my website, rogerwlowther.com, for a transcription of this podcast and various links. As we say in Japan, ja, mata ne. See you next time.